0: Let's Talk Development, Episode 15. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of Let's Talk Development. Uh, I am delighted to be hosting this today. I am Adia Afsil, a fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. It is my pleasure today to be in conversation with Hina Rabbani Khar, the former foreign minister of Pakistan, in a discussion on Pakistan's foreign policy. Um, a brief introduction, um, Hina... Khar was Pakistan's foreign minister from 2011 to 2013, uh, the youngest person and the first woman to have served in that position. And she was the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs um, in the most recent uh, period from April 2022 to August uh, 2023. Um, Hina also served as the Minister of State for Finance and Economic Affairs from 2008 to 2011 uh, as a longtime member of Pakistan's National Assembly. And uh, we also share an alma mater, uh, the Lahore University of Management Sciences alums. So I'm delighted to be in conversation um, with you today, uh, Hina. And I thought we would start out really broadly, since you just left government and your position um, in the foreign ministry, uh, a couple of months ago, I thought we would start with a broad question on what you see as Pakistan's foreign policy approach today, sort of its major priorities, and um, and and then perhaps we can delve into how it's changed since 2011 over your multiple stints in office. Thank
1: you, Madhya. and uh, thank you for asking a very wise question. Uh, okay, so I think it's it's kind of interesting because if you look at the overall um, you know, um, articulation of what is any country's foreign policy, I'm always sort of amazed that typically you can pick up any country and it would talk in a similar language as to what its foreign policy is. It's all good. It's all in sort of the positive terrain of engaging with the world, trying to get the maximum, uh, uh, you know, for their people to, work, to move towards development, towards economic you know, uh, uh, economic development, well-being, human rights, political rights, etc. But uh, we all see how this plays out very differently. Coming specifically to Pakistan's major priorities, I think uh, whether you talk about now, uh, in my latest stint as Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, or about uh, 13 years back um, Mm -hmm. as Foreign Minister, I would say that every time the Pakistan People's Party at least is in power, the major... uh, undisputed priority is to be able to engage within the region in a way that this region becomes cohesive, one that is moving together rather than against each other, one that is moving towards, uh, if not proper economic integration, then at least uh, economic participation with uh, more with its neighbors than with, you know, countries far away. And uh, the challenge for Pakistan has been obviously its geography which is also perhaps the biggest opportunity. But in the 70 years that Pakistan has been, um, you know, existing, it is something that has really come out more as a challenge than as an opportunity. And as the space and uh, the conditions in Afghanistan changed geometrically in the last 10, 13 years, our challenges remained. Uh, When you look eastward, obviously the challenges are uh, disproportionately or have disproportionately increased or become an exceptionally negative zone uh, vis-a-vis India and that has to do much with India's internal dynamics, internal politics rather than Pakistan's reactions or our actions. And of course when you look towards the north in China we have a partner that we would love to emulate our relationship with China with our other neighbours. And then we have Iran uh, with which we have had uh, perhaps a better uh, set of relations in the last decade than we've had in the decades before and then, of course, uh, you we look at the Central Asian republics um, as the broader region that Pakistan, uh, going all the way up to Turkey, um, that, would, that Pakistan would consider to be its sort of in some ways home ground. Yeah. So I think if I were to pick up one uh, foreign policy priority, it would be to be able to live in peace within the region and at peace with the region.
0: Great. Uh, that that's a that's a great place to start and in fact uh perhaps i can drill down a little bit on on the region and then and then we can broaden it out to um sort of the the great powers uh if you will but thinking about um thinking about the region you said that the relationship with india of course has been very challenging and that's changed over the last uh you know dozen years or so um if, if you were to drill down on bilateral relations with India, would you say that 2019 has, has served, you know, India's revocation of uh, uh, Kashmir's autonomy in August of 2019, has that served as sort of a, a breaking point? Uh, has the breakdown in relations been more gradual? And do you see any, well, um, let's say, for resuming trade ties uh, going forward?
1: Okay, so I am uh, what I call indefatigable. Digitally opt- uh, optimistic, mostly on the region, uh, but unfortunately or fortunately, we are also somebody who learns over time and cannot ignore the reality of the situation. Um, I think 2019 in many ways was a manifestation of India's internal implosion, which has been a direct, uh, which has been a direct. Um, so it it has been it is directly a result of. Uh, the internal politics in India, which has become exceptionally extremist and where a certain leader feels his legacy is a divided India th- rather than a united India. And in India, which is not, which has move, moved away substantially uh, from its secular credentials, also from its democratic credentials in a really big way. And what I take a lot of pride and comfort in is that while today... I would not be looking at any trade, or frankly speaking, anything else with India to lead to a path which would be a recovery path and a normalization path, and then an engagement path. Um, But back in 2011 to 13, I was the biggest spokesperson of normalizing trade. In fact, since 1965, we had not given India MFN status, and we started the journey towards that. We started the journey towards changing the negative list into the positive. In fact, the positive list. and saying let's treat India like any other country and let's start normalizing so that we are normal human beings treat each other like normal if not partners and at least diplomats and uh, politicians you know and are able to then start the resolution of disputes and conflicts which have actually permeated through our relationship and define the course and for me the test case really is that okay yes it was a terrible terrible partition badly conducted in haste in ways that had exorbitant cost, human cost, and other costs. But then, if these two nations today were to look at and do a, you know, a result, uh, a scorecard on them, have they added to the basket of problems that they inherited from partition, or have this, have they taken out conflicts that were that were inherited? So whether you look at searching whether you other things those were all to remove and, and right now because there's an anti-muslim and also i would say very clearly an anti-pakistan um uh, uh, government which has actually made it its job to um, to to pollute uh, the indian media the indian environment which is the opposite of a, what a government should be doing uh, so there's absolutely really no scope because the leadership required has a legacy of extremism and a legacy of division and a legacy of not engaging with its perhaps most substantial neighbor.
0: Right. Um, move move uh, to Pakistan's West, that relationship has also, um, of course, been very complicated over the decades. Uh, and and as you Noted has changed uh, dramatically um, uh, with, of course, uh, the, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in uh, 2021. Um, I, I wonder if you could uh, sort of uh, shed your views on on where Pakistan's relationship with Afghanistan is going, um, and the the challenges, uh, in particular, that you see um, with uh, you know Afghanistan as Pakistan's western neighbor uh, going ahead. Okay, so that's
1: perhaps even more complex. Um, it is certainly, you know, um, up for competition as to which one is more complicated, complex and in some ways intractable. Uh, I would hope it's not the West and I, as i would, it's not the East also, but certainly not the West because um, in if you were to do an analysis over the last uh, many decades, it's a story where many Pakistanis, ordinary Pakistanis, policymakers, military, politicians, uh, you know uh, think tanks, everyone would believe that it's a relationship that Pakistan has invested deeply in and Pakistan has uh, sacrificed deep before. Uh, we are a country which stands out in the Committee of Nations as a as one which opened its arms, its doors to Afghan refugees not once, not twice, but many many times. And uh, in many ways uh, when you look back at that time, That uh, had a huge impact on changing the very fabric of Pakistan society. And uh, we let it happen, and it happened. Um, Of course, the Afghans are not to blame for it. It was uh, the reaction of the world collectively to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and using, um, you know, literally using and infesting people's minds with extremism as a tool to be able to deal with the challenge at hand. Uh, which had that impact because if you allow your minds uh, the minds of your population to be infested with extremism that does not have it does not have a switch on and off button so that was the history. now the new story um as uh, the takeover of the taliban or the early hasty exit or not early but hasty exit of uh, american troops american forces and nato forces happened i think the really the problem uh, lied so much in how it happened because if had, they had gone through the negotiation process which was already on the anvil where a lot of ground had been covered and there was a, a, a takeover or a negotiated process through which uh, a multi-ethnic, multi-party, multi-people you know people, which included women and men and uh, different ethnicities had taken over Uh, it would have been a very, very different scenario right now. But here, where we are right now, I think just to put it in very, very crudely or to put it very succinctly, um, it is a matter of TTP. I think the entire edifice or the entire challenge literally emanates from that one question where what Pakistan's expectations were, were not only not met, but the, uh, uh, the lack of action exceeded our worst nightmare and also it had to do with uh, many decisions that they took where Pakistan found itself not being able to frankly speaking uh, you know contest their case in the international arena because as a Muslim country uh, where women have constitutional rights where women, uh, women's education is constitutionally uh, guaranteed up till a certain level uh, to uh, continue to uh, Speak for an entity which was closing all doors on women became increasingly difficult. So, multifaceted challenges. Uh, but even as we speak, and even as things have are not at their best place, uh, it's it, it's not a choice whether to engage, whether not to engage. we always have to engage. And I do want to take this opportunity, Madiha, to say that countries like pakistan conduct their foreign policy very differently than many western world many countries in the western world and the difference is that we don't like to articulate openly in the media in press conferences what we're negotiating what we're asking so we can have very tough meetings but we don't believe in um using you know media or uh the airwaves to uh speak about it too much because we believe that real diplomacy believes uh, is 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 achieved through real negotiations, and real negotiations only happen when they're away uh, from the you know glare of media and uh, away from the spotlight. So it's yeah. So I, I think the challenge over there is really our own security and our uh, clear indication to our friends in Afghanistan, whoever it may be, that that's an uncompromisable good for us.
0: That's right, and I think the the TTP problem. I mean, many of us foresaw uh, that that problem and, and the fact that the Afghan Taliban would be loath to to cut ties with the TTP or to you know exercise influence over the over the TTP, and sadly, you know, that has come to pass, and that's uh, affecting Pakistan security, um, obviously directly. Um, so, uh, if if we can move uh, now now to to another. Um, uh, of course, uh, with 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 China, the the relationship has been sort of consistently strong. Uh, but I wonder if if you can uh, perhaps talk about the ways in which you think that's changed, and uh, uh, the the influence of of CPEC, um, if there is an influence of Pakistan's changing relationship with uh, the U.S. And then and then we will come to come to the, the the U.S. But I thought maybe we could move to China to sort of round out. The, the region, um, if we can. Okay, so, um,
1: yeah, I think the U.S. would be a separate um, perhaps question because I think the U.S.-China relationship right now has a huge impact on what's happening within our region. And that doesn't have to do only with the bilateral relations of Pakistan with China, which have not been affected by it, I think, or the bilateral relations of, the U- of Pakistan with the U.S., which have perhaps been a little bit affected, but not from our side and more... Um, from the U.S.'s sort of uh, uh, new uh, way of looking at the world where it is almost like either you're with us or you're with them. Uh, so I, just coming to China, I think China is, stands out in Pakistan as a relationship where there's absolutely uh, there's absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind, in any agency's mind, in any uh, political party's mind, in any people's mind, and broadly the people also, uh, it, China in some ways unites Pakistan because there is complete clarity um, on our uh, on, on the efficacy, on the need of the usefulness, utility of this relationship, and of our full commitment of our you know, to this relationship. It's also been very predictable, and it's been very consistent, which is something which I feel defines um, how uh, attached a country is to any relationship. Um, there's been an element of predictability there's an element of consistency uh, in this relationship and I think has grown uh, stronger and not weaker at all Um, as CPEC is concerned uh, CPEC for me you know I always say to my Western colleagues, I'm amazed and shocked when people can point fingers at something like CPEC which is actually a development um, oriented relationship which is an economic Integration-oriented uh, in relationship, which is an economic well-being-oriented relationship. Um, so CPEC, in some ways, is not in some ways, but is exactly part of the broader BRI initiative of uh, uh, China. But also stands out as a as a flagship of the BRI just because of the numbers and because of the length and breadth of CPEC itself. Um, and CPEC is uh, when it's viewed by most of the West as if exclusively China-Pakistan thing. Uh, is uh, in some ways uh, shows how we are clouded by our own, um, you know, uh, how we look at the world. And sometimes how we look at the world, we, the, we, we, we do actions which start making the world become like that. Because if you have a north-south cor- corridor and the east-west corridor in Pakistan, that corridor is open to all our neighbours. That corridor um, uh, generates economic activity and connects us to all the nodes within the region. Uh, so, yeah, I think CPEC is a great flagship program. There have been obviously many or some small challenges, but uh, it still stands out as um, as perhaps a flagship of BRI. And uh, by and large, I think the depth of our relationship with China is sometimes uh, not even understood. But what is what I do want to say before I end on this is that china Pakistan relationship hasn't changed in the last 10 years or it hasn't suddenly bloomed also in the last 10 years. The world's interest or the West's concerns and interest and I think sometimes are ill-placed the sort of concerns about China's rise, which has been a pretty natural rise and their inability to accept a southern country or a developing country to have emerged as a major competitor in the economic field and in the technology field more than anything else because the military field still belongs to the U.S. As you know, the U.S. military spending—if you compare it to the next seven, including China, military spenders of the world—the U.S. singularly exceeds the next seven in line. So the concern is about China becoming an economic competitor, technological competitor, and Pakistan feels that that should not at all be a concern because we always, the world was taught post, you know, liberal order, that uh, competition was a good thing, that whoever was more proficient should be able to trade with everyone else. So yeah, so it's a it's a complex, uh, it's a complicated world. It's a world which is more interested in decoupling and really uh, dividing the world further, which is very, very costly in an environment where climate change should be, frankly speaking, our most immediate, um, uh, seen as the most immediate threat. And the world needs to come together to work around AI, around um, climate change, to be able to build the governance structures that we were able to build many decades back, which were international in nature, because this will require all of us to Put our hands on the table. It cannot be done by one affair leaving out the other.
0: Uh, great. Now, that um, actually is a is a very natural sort of segue into the discussion on, on the U.S. Of course, you, know, you, you noted uh, that U.S.-China competition in some ways has become the defining challenge that the U.S. thinks. Or um, are, are one of the defining challenges uh, of its of its sort of, uh, approach to the world, and of course, America has tilted uh, towards the the Indo Pacific uh, with a very strong strategy uh, towards the Indo Pacific. So, um, if we can sort of, uh, you know, th- this could be a podcast in and of itself. So, so um, you know, we'll have to be sort of brief on on the U.S. But uh, the but a lot has changed, right? So, uh, obviously, you know, the, the Afghanistan factor. And the withdrawal from Afghanistan has has changed the relationship. The growing um, uh, U.S. closeness with India, you know, do you think that has changed the relationship over your over your uh, stints uh, in in office? Of course, and you know the the uh, U.S. approach to China and you know Pakistan's closeness with China that is factored in. But then there is the bilateral relationship in and of itself, and I've long argued that. the the U.S. look at the at Pakistan as a country in its own right and not defined by Afghanistan, not defined by by its region. It's unclear um, whether whether the U.S. is there yet. Um, but you, of course, uh, presided uh, over or you were at the helm of the Foreign Ministry um, uh, uh, in a very terrible year for U.S. Pakistan relations in 2011, and um, and then uh, again were Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. Um, in a period, in a after a period of a relative low, in, in particular defined by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, t- towards the end of uh, uh, 2021 relations, uh, bilateral relations were at a low point again. So, you know, if you could sort of in broad strokes tell us where you think that relationship is today um, and, and what the major challenges and opportunities are.
1: Okay, so without being overly, uh, meaning, uh, re- remaining a realist, And um, I I, I can just say, uh, first of all, that I think it's important to note that any relationship which is born out of compulsion, any relationship which is born out of one country's nuisance for the other, any relationship which is born out of uh, a country's deep requirement, which is perhaps time-bound and and, uh, not really uh, based on uh, your um, natural cohesion or natural... uh, what I call the Venn diagram of your interests being, you know, happily uh, coinciding, uh, cannot really move uh, very concretely forward and there will be dips in. Uh, So Pakistan-US relationship has been defined a lot in terms of the external environment around Pakistan's geography over the last many, many decades. And that has had a toll on it. Now, allow me to say this at the same time that right now, U.S.-India relationship is also entirely a byproduct of U.S.'s wish, desire, uh, and what they feel uh, requirement of, uh, of containment of China. Okay, so if you start looking at, you know, 2018 defense strategy paper, when they start uh, looking at uh, terrorism not as the biggest threat, but in emerging China and the revisionist uh, Russia, as they called it, as the biggest threat, uh, that, in many ways, was a defining moment of articulation of something that was in this way, at least since 2010 and perhaps, uh, you know, that famous Indo-Ilt uh, 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 speech, uh, but perhaps even before that. Having said that, currently, while we were in office, I was not very unhappy with where Pakistan and U.S. relationship was, simply for the reason that it was based on pragmatic grounds. Uh, we I used in office the terms de-lens and de-link our relationship with any other country whether it's any of our neighbours, Pakistan-Indo-West relationship um, has many grounds to stand on, uh, you know, the diaspora being one of them and a long history of really strong um, uh, inter-sort of connections, whether it's in, in the military field or in the education field or in health or in many, many other areas. So uh, I think it is now becoming a much more pragmatic relationship, but also there is the overall uh, very, very big uh, clouds hanging over because of their uh, compulsion to engage with India in a way which is really unprecedented in many ways. Because if you looked at the last uh, Biden, the uh, you know readout, uh, it was really more than what U.S. typically does with it, with even its NATO partner. So if you were to strategically locate it, it just use U.S.'s desire to prop up India, whether it's ready or not. Um, and then whether it is going against many of the democratic values that they say is what connects India to the US or going against many of its secular values or whatever India does. So I think in the complete impunity that the US and many Western countries that have given to India is actually something which has less of an effect or an impact of our relationship with the US but certainly has a deep, deep impact on our relationship with India because with this impunity, India gets a carte blanche or, uh, you know, absolutely the space to become a rogue state within the region and do whatever it will. 2019, send its jets into Pakistan's territory, do anything which is international law against every principle of international law. But nobody is willing to call out India. And that is very, very dangerous for the region.
0: In some ways, you know, that, of course, um, tilt towards the Indo-Pacific and the closeness with, with India um, what well, well, is something that has changed uh, over over the years, but had begun already uh, in your last um, stint in office, um, or, or your second last stint in office, so as minister uh, for foreign affairs in in twenty eleven with the Obama administration. But of course, that has that has changed. Um, I, I wonder if I can ask sort of one last question that's perhaps more substantive on foreign policy, and then you know I I would like to talk. Um, or ask you uh, about your experience um you know of course as the the youngest person and as a woman um heading the the foreign ministry but um if we can talk about pakistan's economic realities and their effect on its foreign policy um in particular thinking uh, you know we can think about uh, the 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 last year and a half uh the fact that pakistan was mired in an economic crisis um uh, and uh you know the, the, the deal with the IMF uh was, was perhaps the most important thing on every everyone's mind. So thinking about Pakistan's debt, thinking about Pakistan's sort of constraints uh in terms of economic realities and then requirements for assistance, you know, given natural disasters such as the the floods last year, um how do they affect its its foreign policy? Um and uh you know the, what uh challenges uh, do you think they, um sort of uh, lay out for Pakistan's foreign policy?
1: Look, there can be 1,001 stories to give evidence of what I'm going to say, but I'm going to just say two lines on it. And I think this is, and I'm going to put it as crudely, as undiplomatically, as realistically as it needs to be put. And that is that a country which is not fully economically sovereign, which is which means it is not completely economically independent, Which means it is one; it is not a country which needs to look towards east, west, north, south, uh, right, left, to for economic, uh, you know, handouts, bailouts, whatever you may call it, cannot have a foreign policy which is entirely in its hands. Uh, Cannot have, or or at least to be able to say, because I won't say that cannot have a sovereign foreign policy, because I think we do have a sovereign. Foreign policy in terms of the broad strategic um, uh, goals of Pakistan and I think there's never been a compromise on that but just to be able to your ability to pursue uh, any country or relationship with any country is severely severely handicapped by your arts on the economic front from those countries and then you start operating at a completely different level. So uh, if there is one thing that can uh, sort of unleash the potential if you want to use something uh, you know a word as uh, typical as that one of Pakistan foreign policy. It is economic sovereignty. It is being on the path which is where we are economically, you know, not only sovereign but just functional on on our own. Um, yes, and this has a deep, deep impact on any pursuits of foreign policy any realistic pursuits of foreign policy.
0: Thanks for your candor, candor on that. I I, I appreciate that. Um, so. Uh, Unless uh, there's something that you want to sort of uh, discuss that I that I have missed, uh, you know, of course, again we've moved swiftly through various parts of of the world, um, and and you've been very succinct but also um, uh, you know detailed. Um, uh, I I would like to to ask you um, about your experience as a as a as a woman in in Pakistan's politics. Uh, and then in in foreign policy so there is obviously there's the, the domestic aspect um uh, and of course you've been a member of parliament uh for uh you, you know for the first time uh, uh you, you were elected uh that was in 2002 you've been a member of parliament uh um since then you were minister of state for economic affairs and then of course uh minister for foreign affairs what do you see as the role of women in politics, domestically, um, you know, and especially in sort of formulating foreign policy, uh, you know, in terms of sort of thinking about, you know, Pakistan the P. And then, what what have you seen, um, uh, you know, in your interactions uh, abroad, um, uh, that in in you know, and you can you can if there's challenges, but also. Of course, uh, you know I'm sure great opportunity and 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 great success. You know, however you want to deal with this question, but it'd be interesting. Uh, in particular, I think for for listeners, um, especially you know uh, young women who would look to you, um, they, they you know would want to know sort of uh, what your experience has been, and you know I'm sure be encouraged by it. Because so but yeah,
1: I did not really seek politics. Politics sort of happened to me because of, uh, frankly speaking, the work that my father had done in his constituency rather than anything that I had done to deserve it. Um, I, I won, uh, two contested two, two of my first elections and on the third uh, time I was in parliament, I came through the People's Party's uh, sort of seat. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be again very honest about it. I mean, uh, coming from the privileged background that I do I have really uh, the role of women when you call it. I mean, I think it, things are very different when you come from a, uh, you know, from a, from a privileged background because uh, you have the best education in some ways. Uh, you have a lot of exposure. And I came from you know your alma mater and my arms where we are trained to work very hard and to have always done our homework and our readings. And I became a very young minister of state for economic affairs. And I think first. Perhaps the only challenge was for very old people to take you seriously and you uh, are able to deal with that challenge the first meeting because if you've read better than them and if you've done your readings, I think people uh, and you know what you want to be done, people start taking you very, very seriously. So I, 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 I really am, uh, will have to say that in many ways I have found uh, being a woman less inhibiting and more opening of doors of opportunity. Whether it's in the West, whether it's just within Pakistan, I think you're expected to be half as good, half as smart, and then you twice or at least as good. Uh, You know, people uh, take you very, very seriously. Uh, So I have never really found my age or my gender to come in the way of my work. And I have really, and that's why I take great pride in the fact that, or, or my belief is that your work is what defines you, not your gender, not your age whether it was 10 years back when I was youngish very very youngish i was only 33 when 25 when i entered politics and 33 when i became foreign minister uh, or now uh, when i was much older you know 10 13 years older uh, it is really not your age or your gender which defines how seriously people take you it is really your work and how seriously you take yourself and your work if you're going to be unprepared people are going to not take you very seriously and in Pakistan, like many other countries, um, I think there's such a you know there's always such a dearth in any profession of uh, people who take their work seriously that uh, I think in order to be counted, you just need to be hardworking and clear-headed uh, more than anything else. So I have found um, in in Pakistan really it's because a lot of people, especially international press, when they ask me questions, they want me to tell me tell them about their struggles. I haven't had. So I can't manufacture them. Uh, Being a woman, I've had many other struggles, but being a woman, I haven't had. There is obviously that whole question of how you manage yourself because we come from a cultural background. Because I come from a very, very uh, conservative background, I own my compulsions. I don't fight them. Uh, Okay, and I would uh, want to dress up conservatively when I am representing the country because I represent a conservative country. I can do whatever I do in my life. Um, as far as my region or the constituency I represent in muzaffargarh also happens to be a very conservative uh, society, so I own where I come from. I am not ill at ease with it, and, and I think that's per, per, perhaps because of the rearing and uh, you know that our parents gave us. Because I think both my mother and father were very clear on giving us absolutely every exposure, whether you wanted to play polo, go to universities, about everything, but also had to respect the culture um and the geography that you came from. And I think that was instilled very early in our lives and perhaps that was um you know that prepared us well to work in this environment.
0: Great. That, you know, again a very, very candid answer and and, and a very refreshing one. Um if I could ask one last question, uh which is that Pakistan is a, you know at a at a tough point in its kind of you know in its sort of now, not just in in the world, but but sort of thinking about uh, where it is domestically. and and part of that has to do with um its economic crisis, of course. Pakistan um, uh, you know, has a, a very young population uh, and it's dealing with, you know, sort of skyrocketing inflation, a lot of economic problems. um uh, there are uh, elections due. um there were due this month but uh hopefully will be held sometime early next year you know where do you where do you see pakistan going uh big question but sort of where do you what what do you see as pakistan's major challenges and opportunities and you know sort of the hope for for harnessing uh its its potential um and and that you know is is again a a, a sort of a very broad question but but perhaps um one that we can end with.
1: Okay, great. So uh, I, I'll just say two, three things. Okay, first of all, you uh, thank you for first of all not saying that Pakistan is at crossroads because ever since I was born, I was hearing how Pakistan is at crossroads. Okay, the uh, two things that you mentioned, at least one thing that you mentioned, you mentioned population and Pakistan has a very large, big, in, uh, you know, it, within the country, which can either become or have become its biggest liability which is also its biggest opportunity, or which are also its biggest opportunity. One is geography, and one is our, the other is our population. Now, why do I say that? Because so far, if we are, all of our borders are going to be closed and we are going to have a difficult time uh, being able to send goods, services, and people across the border, then that geography is not an opportunity; it is a challenge. In the very same way, if the same population is educated, technically sound, by which I mean has been given you know whether it's vocational training or uh, training in technology or education, then it is your biggest opportunity. Not only outsourcing it to the rest of the world, which is going through the opposite of our population problem, which is an aging population all of the West, but also about harnessing Pakistan's full economic potential. So just repeating myself: population geography right now challenge, but the biggest opportunity. It's if we if we are able to deal with this, Pakistan the miracle waiting to happen or um, eternal issues I think the simple story a lesson that we refuse to learn is that if we are not going to allow each institution to really grow develop mature in its own constitutional space then we can try different permutations of trying to get easy quick solutions to Pakistan's you know rise or everything else but we will fall flat on our face the third thing stop looking externally start concentrating internally And I will define it in two ways. One, we are seeking all the time external investments, foreign investments. We are unable to do what it takes to develop the ecosystem, internal investments. We are unable to uh, sort of take all the layers of bureaucracy and reporting and, you know, for normal businesses. It's through the normal business. If the ecosystem for your local businesses is going to be a thriving one, the international or foreign investors will block automatically. So there is no way out. And my final word on this is that as someone who has, you know, it's been 20 years I've been in this space. That's a pretty long time. And if I look at those 22 years, if there's one conclusion that I've drawn, is that we are always in a rush. We're always in a hurry. I've been through too many cabinets to not be able to realize that and too many parliaments not to be able to realize that. And too many think tanks, you know, talks and everything else. Uh, so typically... If you want to build something, an institution, a policy, it takes really hard work, a lot of hard work and years for those institutions to come up. We want solutions in one day. So we never look at things which have long term impact, which are able to actually, you know, give us uh, what we need in terms of building the ecosystem, both in the economic field and also in the political, uh, uh, political, I would say, and the civil service field. So we need to be a little bit much, not a little bit, but much more long-term oriented. And I think a great, great example, a country that we love to love but hate to emulate is China. Uh, all of their planning is for decades ahead. They're able to put in the hard work and the building blocks to, for the pillars to rise and then a founda- you know, for the foundations to be put, pillars to rise and a roof to be put over it. If you're unable if you want the roof before the pillars and the pillars before foundations, then it's gonna be a very weak building.
0: Well, uh excellent. Um uh, many thanks, um, Hinarabani Clark for a rich, uh substantive, uh candid conversation. We covered a lot of ground, uh but we also were able to drill down uh on 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 many of these key relationships. Um and I, I think this was a hopeful conversation. Uh, uh, So uh, um, thanks very much again. And thank you to uh, listeners for joining us.
1: Pleasure. Thank you so much.